Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the chance that we have once again to look to it for guidance, for instruction, for rebuke if needed, for encouragement. We pray, Lord, that even as we just sang, your mercy would reign like a flood in, um, in Gabe right now. And I pray that uh, you would draw both uh, Tammy and Chad to you and, and be merciful. And be merciful to us. Lord, guide us as we walk through your word and instruct us. Lord, fill us with what you want us to see about you and our purposes here in this world. We give you thanks in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> if I go like this and cough many times, excuse me. <clears throat> Mike read the text. It's two, par- two parables. Um, two parables that both just as Jesus said they would, unveil the secret of the kingdom of God. The first of those parables revealing the nature of its progress, the second of the parables revealing its final form. The first parable focusing on the means of its growth, the second focusing on the end of its harvest, both providing immense help to us in all of our kingdom work. The parable of the seed teaches us that in our sowing with abandon, as the parable of the sower taught us that we can, not only that we must, but I want to emphasize that we can. We can also daily cease sowing to sleep and then rise to do it all over again. To cease and sleep each day, not out of sheer necessity, because we are exhausted, which is behind the we must cease and sleep language. But I want to emphasize, we can, brothers and sisters. We can, after we've sown with abandon, we can cease and lay down each day to sleep in faith that where the seed falls and what happens to the seed when it hits the ground is not ours to control. That's the parable of the seed in verses 26 through 29. The parable of the mustard seed in verses 30 and 30 through 32 takes the imagery of the parable of the seed and carries it forward to the end of the process. When it is a full-grown tree and birds are nesting in its branches and the lesson of the parable is one in perseverance. Resting in the promise that that this That what I'm doing right now, what Mike and Doris are doing right now with the kids, what you do at night with your kids and daily with your neighbors and your coworkers and your friends and your family members as God provides opportunity, that all of this 
sewing. There's supposed to be a picture of seeds. That all of this collectively will become that. Or to put it another way, all of our obediences to the commission to go and preach and speak and serve and love in Jesus' name, all of our 45-minute sermons, all of our five-minute conversations, all of our four-hour food pantry services, all of our 10-minute Jesus Storybook Bible times at night with our kids, all of our five-second spontaneous, as many of you have been uttering since last night about Gabe, all of our five-second spontaneous urgency of the moment prayers, as well as our planned out daily routine, 30-minute prayer walks, and our week-long fastings, and so many other seeds being sown will fall into the ground, and at the end of the world will yield this harvest. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So let's walk through these parables together and see how we arrived at those conclusions. The parable of the seed got to be careful how we read the parable of the seed because for the first time here, Jesus begins a parable in chapter 4 with the kingdom of God is. And because Matthew 13 is probably much more ingrained in us than Mark 4, we likely want to automatically read the next word as like. The kingdom of God is like, and then an image. So leaven, treasure hidden in a field, a net, or like a grain of mustard seed, as in the next parable. But Jesus isn't comparing the kingdom of God to a thing here, as in an object, but he's comparing it to a process. And it is the process that is the focus. It begins similar to the parable of the sower. So let me just refresh this here. Verse 3, Behold, a sower went out to sow along the path, on rocky ground, among thorns, and into good soil. But the process that the parable of the seed amplifies is the process of the seed falling into good soil and bearing fruit. So the parable of the seed in verses 26 through 29 is taking verse 20 and blowing it up. Verse 8 said, other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And Jesus explains that in verse 20 as, those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. The seed is the word of the gospel. The soils are the people. That's clear from the parable of the sower. And we don't have to rethink that at all when we come to this parable of the seed. Up there, it was Jesus as the great sower. 
Sowing the seed of the gospel of his kingdom and us commissioned in his stead, in his name, with his gospel. Here, I think the emphasis is on us as sowers. Scattering the seed of the gospel of his kingdom. And the reason I think that is the case is because what the parable brings into focus next, which is the process of what happens to the seed after it is sown. Jesus says, The sower sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. And if your knee-jerk reaction is to say, yes, we do. We understand the science. I would say you're missing the point. Because even though you understand the science, and based on it, you do things like water and weed and fertilize, you still don't control the process. Rather, you trust the process. And I think that is the emphasis here. Mark isn't challenging your intellect. Mark is challenging your sovereignty. And he's so helpfully reminding us of our charge here, which is to sow. James Edwards says, Apart from sowing... The only human activity in this parable is waiting in faith, confident of a harvest to come. Brothers and sisters, this is how the sower sleeps. This is why he can stop and rest and sleep each day, and it is what motivates him to rise again the next day and do it all over. But let's be clear. If it's not on you or me to cause the seed to grow, who is it on? Who controls the process? And your quick answer is likely, well, God. But I want to say, not so fast. Obviously, it's ultimately God, so don't be nervous. But don't jump there and miss the emphasis that Mark is placing here on the seed of the word that is sown. He says, the sower sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how the earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. David Garland, great commentator, says of both parables, this and the next, he says, Both parables indicate that the seed will produce the results inherent within it. Although the farmer cannot begin to fathom how the change takes place, and though the smallest of seeds looks so unpromising. In case you didn't catch it, the key phrase there was, the seed will produce the results inherent within it. That phrase instantly brought to my mind one text. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And don't forget the next sentence. 
Because in the next sentence, the inseparable nature of God and his word becomes clear, which allows us then to rightly make the jump in the right time to the right answer, ultimate answer, God. God causes the growth of the seed. He says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from God. His sight. Whose sight? The answer is the living word. His sight. And the writer of Hebrews says, we will give account to him. To whom we must give account. P.T. O'Brien very powerfully explains. To be exposed to the word of scripture is to be examined fully by God himself and therefore answerable to him. So after we sow and even as we sow and while we lay down to sleep, we do so in faith, meaning we trust the process out of our hands. Not in some fatalistic or deistic way as though the living God is not active and sovereign in the process and that somehow the process itself is active and sovereign apart from God. Rather, we trust the process of the living, active, sovereign God bringing his purposes to pass through means and through agencies. The means being his living word and the agency being his living, sovereign spirit piercing and dividing and examining and condemning and making alive again the human soul into which it, the human soil into which it falls through the word. If you haven't thought of it already, remember when Paul confronted the divided church at Corinth. We're to just quote him. Each one of you says, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. Or I follow Christ. Not only does he follow that in chapter 1 by asking, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? But he also asks later in chapter 3, he says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Answer, servants, through whom you believed. Through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Let me just translate that according to Mark 4. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Answer, means. Means through whom you heard the word of the gospel and by the agency of the spirit, taking the living, active word of the gospel and piercing your heart, examining you fully, condemning you so that he might make you live again. By that means and that agency, you believed. We could also say it this way. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Brother, what are you? 
Who am I? What am I? Answer, Mark 4, sowers. Sowing and watering the seed of the gospel and then laying down our heads on our pillows and going to sleep in faith in the purposes and process of our living, active, sovereign God, who, according to Paul and Mark and Jesus in the parable of the seed, is the one who actually gives the increase. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. What's the conclusion to that equation? It's verse 7. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth, which is exactly what Jesus is saying in the parable of the seed. A man scatters the seed of the gospel of his kingdom. He sleeps, he rises night and day, and the seed sprouts, and it grows, and he does not know how, because he does not have to know how, because, it, because the how aspect is not a burden placed upon him by the one that does know how, and brings the how to pass in his power alone, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. I absolutely love this sentence by James Edwards. More than one sentence. That's a mic sentence if that was all one sentence. Jesus likens the kingdom of God to a process of growth. A seed is not spectacular, nor does its laborious growth attract attention. Night and day a farmer waits for seeds. He sleeps and he gets up, and life goes on as it always has. But simultaneously and independent of the farmer, another process is at work. Slowly, imperceptibly, the seed sprouts and grows. And verse 29 concludes the parable and prepares us for the emphasis of the parable of the mustard seed because it takes us to the end. It takes us to the harvest. It takes us to the time when the grain is ripe and at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come, which is almost certainly a quotation of Joel 3.13. But from a totally different angle. And I just... I, ha I have to share this with you because there's a third text where the imagery comes up and it makes the whole interaction of this imagery even that much more interesting. I'm admitting to you it may be completely unnecessary, but I really don't care because it's unnecessarily awesome. So, Joel 3, beginning in verse 9. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords, your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations. Gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. In verse 13. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the wine press is full, the vats overflow, for their evil is great. Clearly, a harvest of judgment and wrath. The opposite of the harvest of Mark where the harvest that is reaped is the fruit of the earth that the word of his gospel has brought forth. 
And the other place where this imagery is used is all the way at the end in Revelation 14, where both Joel 3 and Mark 4 are captured with one awesome distinction. I want to begin reading in Revelation 14 at verse 14, but I want to set it up by noting one thing in verse 6, verse 8, and verse 9. And that is John's vision in Revelation 14 of three consecutive angels preaching and warning and urging the nations to repent and give glory to God or drink the wine of God's wrath poured out full strength into the cup of his anger and tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And we know that the nations rage and fight and refuse the call and reject the gospel. So the warning that was issued to them comes to pass in verse 17 of Revelation 14, where another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who had authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. Remember, the Joel, Joel used the imagery of a sickle gathering grapes to a wine press to picture the wrath of God falling on the nations that stir themselves up against him and refuse to repent. It's the same imagery in Revelation 14, and it is angel after angel announcing and warning and swinging the sickle to gather the grape harvest of the earth to throw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. So it is an angel proclaiming, verse 6. Another angel announcing, verse 8. Another angel warning, verse 9. Another angel with a sharp sickle, verse 17. Swinging his sickle to gather a harvest of grapes to be crushed in the winepress of God's wrath at the order of yet another angel, in verse 18. And in the midst of all this chaos... Literally in the midst of it in Revelation 14 in verses 14 through 16 is an entirely different scene. That also includes sickles and harvests and reflects not grapes and winepress and wrath and angels like Joel 3, but grain and glory and most distinctly Jesus. So verse 14, after the third angel warns and before the fourth angel swings his sickle, here's the scene. He says, then I looked and behold a white cloud, which alone changes the whole scene. While all around is smoke and blackness and war and chaos, there's one white cloud. That remains in the midst of it, and the one seated on the cloud is not another angel. Like the verses all around it, John says, Seated on the cloud was one like a son of man. 
with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the, thro- on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is truly is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. One harvest of grapes for judgment, another harvest of grain for mercy. And where is Jesus in that scene? He is the great sower who is in the end also the great reaper of the great harvest of his people that the seed of his word is producing. Go back to David Garland. God's hour is coming. Nay more, it has already begun. In his beginning, the end is already implicit. No doubts with regard to his mission. No scorn, no lack of faith, no impatience can make Jesus waver in his certainty that out of nothing, ignoring all failure, God is carrying on his beginnings to completion. All that is necessary is to take God seriously. To take him into account in spite of all outward appearance. That's the parable of the seed. And that doesn't leave us much time for the parable of the mustard seed. That's on purpose, and that's okay. Because just as the parable of the seed in verses 26 through 29 took verse 20 and blew it up, so the parable of the mustard seed takes not only the subtle, hidden, mysterious process that was emphasized in the parable of the seed and reiterates it, but it takes specifically that end time scene of verse 29 and it blows it up into this awesome imagery of a fully mature mustard plant with birds nesting in its shade. And and I think we just get part of it it's pretty simple as God transforms a tiny speck of mustard seed into a 6 to 10 foot high shrub what God will accomplish through the death and resurrection of Jesus will be just as extraordinary the tiniest of seeds grows into the greatest of shrubs and how this happens is veiled in mystery That really was the emphasis of the last parable. This one just puts some concrete imagery on that. And in verse 32, it focuses on the final form. The new element to this parable is the presence of birds making nests in the plant's shade. The question is, what are the birds? Do they mean or represent anything significant? Now, some do what we recommend doing here all the time, and they search the immediate context first. So in the immediate context, is there any other reference to birds in these parables in Mark 4? And the answer is yes, back in verse 4. Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, And the birds came and devoured it. So some say the birds represent Satan or his host devouring the seed. Others say the birds are in the picture mainly to magnify the sheltering aspect of the tree. Still others say the birds are just detail. 
and they really carry no significance whatsoever. One other option is that the birds represent the nations, which is the option I not only like, in that I want it to be that, but it is the option that I think carries the most warrant biblically. I'll share a few verses in a moment, but I want to quote Daniel Aiken, who agrees that the nations are in view here, and he notes what I think is the most significant factor in the text itself. He says that the birds nest in its shade settles the issue for me. Keep in mind where we've gone and the connections that we've made so far. This scene is future. When the seeds have sprouted and grown, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain, the mustard seed has grown up and become larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches. And keep in mind the comparison. The kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed which becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out branches. Why? He says, so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Not watch and wait for seed to fall along the path in order to devour it. That time has passed here. This is the final form. When the birds can finally make nests and rest in the tree's shade without any fear of crows or vultures. Nests and shade do not communicate hostility or attack. Those details communicate rest and security. To jump back to the Revelation 14 text that I mentioned before, that awesome scene of a white cloud with Jesus sitting on it with a sickle, which he swings to gather the grain harvest of his people, while the other angels are swinging sickles to gather the grape harvest to be trodden in the winepress of God's wrath. Here is how the white cloud Jesus seen in the chaos was introduced. He says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. For their deeds follow them. Blessed indeed, so that they may build nests and rest in the shade of the kingdom forever. I think that's the imagery. That the birds represent the nations is reflected in a number of texts. For our purposes, one striking parallel should suffice. It's Ezekiel 17. It's in the context of a judgment oracle against Judah and specifically Jerusalem, where the king of Babylon, in Ezekiel 17, is portrayed as a great eagle who removed King Jehoiachin from Jerusalem and planted a seed in his place, Jehoiachin's uncle. You remember King Zedekiah, whom the king of Babylon also destroyed because he turned toward another eagle in the imagery, in the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. But in verse 22 of Ezekiel 17, God says this. Thus says the Lord, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. Remember, the cedar was Jerusalem. 
The topmost shoot has represented the king, first Jehoiachin, then Zedekiah, planted by men and destroyed by men. But the sprig that God will plant is the same as the shoot of David. The branch from the stump of Jesse, the one telling the parable of the mustard seed that becomes a plant where birds come and nest and rest in its shade. Notice God says, I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain on the mountain height of Israel. I will plant it that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird in the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. Why is God doing this? He tells us plainly so that all the trees of the field will know that I am the Lord. Something every bird nesting in the shade of the tree of his kingdom already knows. Daniel Aiken says in effect Jesus is asserting that all the peoples of the world are going to be there. The full combined lesson of these two parables is to sow with abandon and to rest in the humble confidence that God has invaded this troubled world, not with a crusade, but with a seed, an imperceptible fifth column that will grow into a fruitful harvest. Chris's dad read Isaiah 55 last week. And I want to close by reading the last four verses this week. Because I think it captures the combined lessons of sowing and resting in faith. Believing that in the purposes of our sovereign God, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and by the power of the sovereign spirit, the seed of the gospel of the kingdom that we sow will produce the results inherent within it. And he guarantees that. He says, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for our God, which is the goal of our sowing. He says, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off ever. Ever. And nor will you, dear brother, dear sister. Nor will you, and nor will your rest in the shade of his kingdom. May that be an encouragement to us to leave here this day and purpose this week to sow with abandon and rest in faith. And may we pray, Lord, let your kingdom come. Lord, let your will 
be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, my prayer is that you might motivate this church body with the truth and promises of your word to sow the seed of the gospel of the kingdom with abandon. And after a long day of sowing each day, to be able to lay down our heads on our pillows at night and rest in faith. Trusting that in your purposes, under your sovereign rule, by your great kindness and mercy, through the power of your spirit, those seeds that are sown will grow, sprout, and bring forth a glorious harvest that is worthy of yourself. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.